friends, Greg Kokel here, and um, thank you for being part of our show today. Incidentally, my phone number is 855-243-9975 if you want to uh, call in during showtime, which is 4 to 6 p.m. on Tuesday evenings. That would be Los Angeles time, Pacific Daylight time right now, and next week it will be Pacific time because we go off of daylight savings and we'll be, I'll be driving home in the dark and waking up at 4 in the morning with the sun coming up with that all, that switcheroo here all over the country except for Arizona, I think. Is that the only state that doesn't do daylight savings time? Good for them. I wish we'd all get off of daylight savings time, frankly, and just have one time. In any event, uh, last show, I talked a bit about my frustration with the way evangelicals are characterized because of their views that are biblical. And I talked about gender and sex, and I talked about Jesus being the only way and how we're called narrow-minded or intolerant or judgmental or exclusivistic, okay? And um, that's the way we're perceived, and I suggested that part of the reason we're perceived that way is because that's the way we are characterized by the press. I, I, I wonder, when people say that, why do you think that people perceive us that way? And where do you think they get that? And I'm sure who those who raise the objection say they get it from Christians. And my response is, I guarantee you, they don't get it from Christians. Um, Christians Christians all the time, and they're nothing like that. Not in terms of their character as being viceful, all right? Uh, But rather, they have points of view that are characterized by the press as this way. And uh, this is where people get most of their ideas about Christians. They get it from the press and the way the press characterizes them and uh, and where movies rep- represent them. And, of course, on the really pressing issues where the culture is pounding away at us, the, um, uh, the as I think Jay Richards called them, the pelvic issues, okay, this is where we're standing our ground, and we're saying no. And then this creates a lot of hue and cry, and we get a bad name for that. Okay, fine, I'll live with that. Um, but we're just trying to stand firm and not live by lies. Okay. And uh, now, uh, along that same line, I have a little clip I want you to hear, Um, and this is uh, Doug from Pine Creek. Now, Doug is an atheist, and Doug has been on the show before. Uh, He's called before, um, well, with his whole entourage listening in. I didn't know that, that he was—we were simulcasting his call, and he raised some issues, and we talked, and then I found out what he did without telling me, and I don't mind that other people listen, but it would have been more polite to just let me know. I asked him to come on the following week, and we'd have an hour together, which we did. And then I ran into him again on a show where I was invited to be interviewed and take calls, but it turned out this Christian host had set up an interview with Doug uh, from Pine Creek and uh, coming after me with a bunch of things. Well, that's all right. I mean, I, I could live with it, even though I was blindsided. So Doug and I have a little bit of a history, but there was a piece that he did recently that I want you to hear. It had to do with homosexuality and religion that I just want to speak to, and I'm not disparaging Doug, but I want to clarify something here um, and, uh, and and respond in some measure to, to his, his concern that he raised. We've got the queued up. Kyle, let's go with it. Gays, lesbians, trans, whatever, all the sexual sins. They don't like it when I say, 
yeah, the Christian's right. You're going to hell if you live this way. And I want the whole world to hear that. But Doug, you hurt their feelings. You make them cry. They, they, they just are being who they are. And if you tell them they're going to hell, that's, I mean, but the point is, it forces them to make a choice. You either believe the scriptures or you don't. And I encourage people like Tim Barnett to force people to make that choice. You either feel bad and continue in that religion or you dump the religion. My choice would be for you would be to dump the religion. Is that it? Okay, that's it. So, okay, thank you, Doug. And um, actually, the second time I listened to it, I found myself agreeing more with Doug than I thought I did at first. Now, Doug's an atheist, okay, and that's why he says, you know, dump the religion, all right? And, uh, and he is making an attempt to be very clear about what Christianity teaches regarding sexual things, particularly the homosexual issue and the transgender issue. And he wants that to be spoken loudly and clearly, and is encouraging Tim Barnett, uh, Red Pen Logic, Stand a Recent Speaker, to say that loudly and clearly so that people will realize if you want to stay Christian, you're just going to feel bad the rest of your life. And you got to accept that. Or you could just dump the religion and feel better. And that's what he suggests being done, all right? So I guess what I want to say, there's a number of things that come to mind here with this. Um, first of all, I think it's a false dilemma, all right, because there are other options. There are a lot of people who say no to their sexual impulses, whatever they happen to be, and live with a level of frustration, but also live virtuously with regards to their sex, sexual behavior as Christians. It isn't like, okay, if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to be miserable all your life. Well, if you choose Christianity and you choose to keep sinning, and by the way, I'm not restricting this to, to sexual sin, if you choose to keep living a way that's inconsistent with what Jesus wants you to live, this is not going to be a good thing. Now, he isolates the sexual things there because those have um, currency, those issues of currency and culture now, and it's so nasty for Christians to say that homosexuality is bad and transgenderism is bad. And uh, and now look at all these people who's having their feelings hurt. And Doug's saying, well, this is what they believe. So if your feelings are hurt, they're hurt. Too bad. This is what their view is. But there's an alternative. Jesus is calling us to follow him and say no to sin. When I became a Christian in 73, it took me, I would say, about not quite a year to get the sexual thing together. I didn't even agree with the Christian sexuality. There's a whole bunch of other things that I had differing views on that I do now, but I still became a Christian. And as I've said in the past, God catches his fish first, and he cleans them. And so it was proper for me to be instructed in virtuous behavior that I didn't understand at first, but later as time went on, I'm convicted, I'm living the way I shouldn't live, and it feels bad. Now I could have done one of two things. 
according to Doug. I could have just kept doing it and feeling bad, or I could have just tossed the religion. Well, there's a third option. I quit doing it. I lived a celibate life for, let me just think now, I think about 25 years until I got married. And I didn't feel bad. I was frustrated sexually in some measure. So what? People who are poor are frustrated sometimes because they're not rich. That doesn't mean it's okay for them to steal. It isn't always fun to do the right thing. In the long term, virtue is its own reward. I agree with that. But it's not easy. It's not. It's more easy to just go with your passions in the moment. However, you may reap the whirlwind down the line, but it's easier to go with your passions at the moment. So uh, I get that. But the point is, is there's another alternative, Doug. And the reason Christians hold this view is because of their understanding about the way that reality is structured, that God made reality in a certain way, and this provides for human flourishing, all right? It provides for human flourishing. There is a good way for human beings to live, and they do better under God's purposes, following God's purposes. All right. And by the way, isn't this like completely obvious? The more that that the sexual revolution continues to get bizarre, the more unhappiness and brokenness that it causes. Well, this is progressivism. Things were much better for people when they did as they were supposed to do. I I, I had somebody tell me the other day, I won't say who but that that uh, abstinence doesn't work. Okay, now this is a line of the left. Abstinence doesn't work. This is why kids need to get sexual education, learn how to use condoms and all that. Because abstinence doesn't work. What? Are you kidding me? Abstinence works every single time. It works to function as it should if you do it, and it's also doable. And I think when people say abstinence doesn't work, they mean it's not really doable. You can't expect kids to say no to sex. Wait a minute, we did that for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, were there exceptions? Yes. But what was the rule? People said no. I, I'm even thinking myself when I was in the, in the 60s. For a long time, I said no to sex because I didn't think it was right. And I was able, even as a you know, virile, energetic, athletic 18-year-old, to say no. And I didn't even know the Lord. But if the culture is constantly pounding you with messages like, do it, do it, do it, and we're going to make you look weird or feel weird or make fun of you if you don't, well, then abstinence gets a lot harder. Okay? Um, it's certainly possible. In fact, I remember being on secular radio, KBC, here in Los Angeles, the ABC affiliate, and making the point with a group discussion here, and I was being interviewed, that I had not had sex for 10 years. Um, that would be like uh, 74, 84. It was probably, I was in my mid-30s. <laughs> Dead air. <laughs> Not good for radio. Dead air. No, People's jaws were dropped. They couldn't believe it. 
And then somebody from KFI, which is the CBS affiliate here in Los Angeles, had been listening in, and they found out they don't want KBC to have the only weirdo, be the only one to have the weirdo. So they called me, and they asked me to go on their show as well. And they said, well, you don't expect other people to live the way you do. Well, yes, of course I do. If that's good for me, because it's good, it's going to be good for others also because it's good. Okay? And so that was an interesting interview. But the point I'm making is it's doable. We can say no. And if we, we may even have unusual or aberrant sexual desires, are we going to be ashamed or live feel bad all the time? No, not if we don't act them out. We say no to them. There's all kinds of desires that we have, I have, you have, that are... Uh, disreputable that we say no to. We don't act them out because we're looking to live a virtuous life. That's the third option. This is a false dilemma. Okay? Um, And so, yes, I I think Doug is right in this regard. Uh, If you're going to be a Christian and benefit from the things that Jesus offers, then there is a price to pay. Jesus himself said, count the cost. This was the person also who said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. He's speaking about sexual sin. Incidentally, Doug mentioned homosexuality and transgenderism. We feel the same way. The biblical view is exactly the same with regards to adultery. So let me just change the uh, illustration. Uh you know, you're going to have to make a choose, choice, all right? You, you're in adultery. You can, you want to accept that religion, you're going to feel guilty in your adultery all your life, okay? You want to get rid of the guilt, get rid of the religion, which is what I'm speaking for Doug now, I recommend you to do, okay? Well, that, that sounds a little sillier, doesn't it? Because um, adultery seems to be more wrong than homosexuality, but it's all the, the same in Jesus' mind. These are all sexual sins. They are all violations of God's purposes. One man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. You're going to choose something else, all right. Then you're going to feel bad. By the way, feeling bad for doing wrong is a good thing. If you don't feel bad for doing wrong, then something else is wrong. That's the way sociopaths are. They feel fine about doing bad things. It's not good. We feel bad about doing bad or feel guilty about doing bad things because we actually are guilty. And hopefully that will be something that drives us to look for a solution to our guilt. And the main solution, obviously, is forgiveness. But the if you're seeking forgiveness in Christ, you're going to follow Christ, then that means you also stop doing those things that are wrong. This <laughs> is not rocket science. All right? Oh, my goodness. All right. Um, that's enough for the moment. Thank you, Doug, for being part of our show. We didn't know that, but it's a public event or public message, and so no problem here responding to it. And I largely agree with Doug. You know, if you want to be part of the team, you got to play by the team's rules. You don't like the rules, go somewhere else. 
the difference is this isn't just a team. It's not a club. This is the nature of reality. And someday, all of those who decided <clears throat> to chuck Christ, God, they're going to stand before Jesus and give an account for their life. And that will not be a pretty, pretty picture. Let's go to a quick break here and uh, then to your calls on Stand to Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. with my headset here trying to get it to work properly but let's go to Abel and uh, let me get the night right button Abel in Mississippi M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I welcome to the show uh, hello Mr. Kokel how are you good how are you okay sir uh, my question for you was uh, what what do Christians mean by when they say, oh, God showed me what to do for this thing, mm -hmm. or God told me where to go for this mission. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because people at my church, uh, sometimes when they go on mission trips, they say, oh, God told me to go on this mission trip. Yeah, uh -huh. And I'm curious to know if God actually told them, or or they're just well. Like, I'll I'll tell you them. my suspicion. I think not. Okay, uh, because I'm not saying that God can't do whatever He wants to do, and He certainly has talked to people in the past, and I think He will in the future. And when I say talk, I mean directly communicate the way I'm communicating with you. And I don't know if that means they're going to hear it in their ears or in their head or whatever, but whatever, it's, he, he will communicate it propositionally clearly to them. And in fact, every time we find in the Bible that God has communicated, that's exactly the way it's happened, okay? That God communicated clearly and without 
without confusion. And there's a reason for this, that it's communicated that way. <clears throat> and Paul talks, at least in principle, about it in 1 Corinthians, let's see, 14. And he says, look at if the bugle produces an indistinct sound. And he's talking about bugles in the battle, you know, their means of communication. But if you can't tell what the bugle is bugling, because they had different bugle tunes for different things like advance or retreat. But if you can't understand what it's saying, you can't respond to it. Who is going to respond? He said, same thing. When God speaks, he's going to have to speak clearly. But people say this kind of thing all the time, um, Abel, and I don't think that those are occasions of God actually speaking to them. Um, Incidentally, the, the best thing to do if you're in a church where people say this a lot is just to ask them exactly what they mean by that. I I can tell you, based on my experience with people talking like this, what I suspect they have in mind. But um, next time around, just ask them, when you say that God told you, how how did—tell me about that. What do you mean by that? How did that happen? Explain the details to me, if you would, and see what they say. Now, most of the time, um, people— People have a some kind of sense inside that they think God is urging them to do this kind of thing. You know, when people say, uh, pastors say this from the pulpit, they'll be giving announcements, we're doing this mission trip. If you feel led by the Spirit, then you can sign up in the foyer. What do you mean, feel led by the Spirit? That means, that, by the way, he's not using the phrase in a biblical way. That phrase doesn't mean what he's referring to. It shows up in Romans 8 and in Galatians 5, but he it, he's using it differently. He's use, he means, well, if you feel a nudge or an urge or a desire or something, then that's God speaking to you, and then you should obey what God is saying to you, quote-unquote, and do what he tells you to do. Again, square, scare quotes. So th- this is—I think this is what's going on. You do not see anything like that the way they're talking about it in the New Testament. There are times when God does something. He tells somebody to do something, but it's usually through an angel or a vision or a voice out of heaven that other people can hear at least the noise that happened to Paul, uh, Saul of Tarsus and the road to Damascus. You don't see in the New Testament this nudge, nudge, you know, hint, hint, I think God is telling me kind of thing. I think what people have bought into is a false understanding of how God guides and how we make decisions. So is this a, a charismatic or a Pentecostal church you go to, Abel? Uh, no, sir. I'm Baptist, and we go to Temple Baptist Church. Uh-huh. Well, uh, Baptists talk, talk like this all the time, so I, I'm not surprised. And so do, you know, whole whole host of people who are good Christian people, but I think they're completely mistaken on this particular point. The unfortunate thing is people think God is telling them to do something because this is the way they've been taught, in a sense, by their church, and then they go off doing things that they have no business doing. And uh, sometimes it can turn into quite a disaster. Some people get married this way. And uh, I feel God is leading me to marry you or God has told me you should be my wife, or something like that. I've ha- I had had a number of people tell me that, women tell me that, uh, that this was God's will for my life, to marry them. 
and God had shown him that. I said, well, I don't know why God didn't show me, you know. But if you if you look in the New Testament, and I, I think I'll recommend um, a resource. We've got a lot of people on board here, so I'm moving a little quickly with the calls. Um, uh, I, there's two resources that you can check out on our website, str.org. Okay, and one is simply, I think it's titled, God Speaking in Acts. Does this sound right, Amy? God Speaking in Acts. She's looking it up. And then there's another little booklet that is for purchase in our bookstore called The Ambassador's Guide to Hearing God's Voice, or something to that effect. Amy's telling me. Go ahead, Amy. Acts and the Voice of God. And there I look at every single time that God spoke to somebody or gave a directive in the book of Acts. And it's very unique what you discover. There's only 13 times, no, 14 times it happens since Pentecost. And uh, they all follow a very particular pattern, and none of them match what your friends describe to you when they say, God told me to do this mission, okay? Um, And the second one is called, uh, is it Ambassador's Guide to Hearing the Voice of God, or To the Voice of God? You can find that on our little store. I think it's like four bucks or six bucks or something like that, but it's the Ambassador's Guide to the Voice of God. And there I talk about all these verses that people use to justify the idea of hearing the voice of God, and I show that these verses aren't talking about that at all. Like, uh, my sheep hear my voice in John 10, or, um, you know, other passages like feeling, being led by the Spirit, Romans 8, Galatians 5, and uh, different things like that. So I, I recommend that you take a look at that, okay? We don't need to disparage our brothers and sisters who talk that way, but I think if you want to get clear on it, ask them for a description of what they're doing. What What do you mean when you say, God told you? I'm really curious about that. And then ask them what, what biblical support they have for it, but I but be careful. Just gather, gather that information. I don't want you to get in a fight with your friends, okay? Yes, sir. All right, Abel, I appreciate your call, buddy. Thank you. Right, you're welcome. Take care now. Let's see, where are we going? To Austin? All right, let me find it. That's a five. And that's Austin in Fullerton, California. Hello, Austin. Hey, how's it going, Greg? I'm doing fine, bro. So, <laughs> calling me bro. True Orange County slang, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. We're both from SoCal. Yeah, that's, uh, well, it's the Orange County Jesus movement stuff, you know, so yeah, yeah. way back. Yeah. Yeah, I you know, grew up in Calvary Chapel, so I know what you mean. Oh, there you um, go. Yeah. So I have a question about slavery mm-hmm. as a sin. Mm-hmm. So I was just reading Pastor Doug Wilson's book, Black and Tan, and he makes the interesting point in that book that um, Christians need to stop being so um, defensive about, um, I guess you could use that word, slavery, because slavery is never listed as a sin in the Bible. And he goes through and says, like, there were multiple opportunities in the New Testament to list it as a sin, and we need to just own it. We need to own it um, and stop conflating it with abortion. Like, people, you know, go out to abortion mills and they say, you know, uh, abortion is the new slavery. And he basically says slavery is not a sin unless you're mistreating your slaves. Mm-hmm. So I guess, and I seem to think he's correct as far as it not being listed as a sin. Mm-hmm. So if it's not a sin, why does it feel wrong? Well, the problem, part of the problem, I don't know that I completely 
agree with Doug Wilson, but he's somebody to be contended with. I mean, he's a he's a uh, he's a thoughtful person and has done a lot of good and etc. So I have a lot of respect for him. Okay, um, so. But part of the problem, and I don't know if he talked about this in his book, but this word in English, slavery, conjures up certain images. This is what happens when people say, well, look at there's slavery in the Bible. Look at this, slavery, 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 slavery. Look at all, slavery. And so my question is, if somebody raises that, what is the picture that, that you have in your mind when you hear the word slavery? My picture is uh, chattel slavery. Right. And particularly, it's not just chattel, which is somewhat of an abstract, but how does that play itself out in the kind of slavery that we had here in the United States? Uh, black slavery. Pardon me? Black slavery. I didn't catch that first word. What kind of slavery? I'm sorry. Uh, black. Black oh, black sla- well, blacks African were slaves, slavery. but they weren't the only ones who were slaved. I mean, lots of places in the world where people were slave- enslaved. But this is what we think about. We think about cargo ships filled with blacks that have been kidnapped and taken in chains and put in the holds of ship, and one quarter of them die on the voyage over, and then they are sold to other people and pressed into um, uh, hard labor with no rights, and uh, can be can be um, treated and killed at will, and so we think of the the horrendous um, practice of slavery in the United States. Okay, that's what comes to mind. Now the question is whether the slavery that we see in the Bible, or that practice that is translated as slavery in English translations now, whether that is akin to the kind of slavery we think of when we see the word. And the answer is, it's not. And this might be some one of the reasons that Doug Wilson is speaking the way he is, because the, 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 uh, the slavery in the Bible is not the same thing as the slavery that we think of when we see the English word. And it's interesting that this Hebrew word that was translated slavery before before the you know the twentieth century was almost never translated slavery. It was always translated servant. And the word is oh now I'm not sure ebed or eber. I think it's ebed, right? E B E D. The Hebrew word E B E D. It also means servant. And what and so when you have indentured servanthood described in the Old Testament, where people, um, how could you, they, 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 in a certain sense, they sell themselves into a circumstance where they are the servants for a period of time with someone else, that is translated as slavery. There's nothing wrong with indentured servanthood. It's a way people made a living. And some people loved it so much with the family that they worked with that they became servants for life beds for life. But see, the translations now almost always translate that word slave. And in the uh, New Testament, the same thing, doulos, D-O-U-L-O-S, that is also the word for servant or for slave. The difficulty is that we have a certain history of slavery, of a certain type of slavery in our country, that was horrendous, and that is the notion we read into the word when we read 
the Hebrew Scriptures, but that is not what was going on. Now, it might have been less than ideal, the kind of things that we see there, <clears throat> but I'll tell you this, the Ebeds in the Old Testament had union protection. They had union representation, so to speak. They had the Mosaic Law. Kidnapping was a capital crime in the Mosaic Law. You, if you kidnapped somebody, you lost your life. So that tells you right away that the kind of slavery, whatever that is, Ebed in the Old Testament, it was nothing like the kind of slavery that we experience here, where people were kidnapped by other blacks, by the way, from the interior of Africa, brought uh, brutally to the coasts, and then they were traded to American and British um, traders and stuffed in the hull and treated miserably and then brought to America. It's a grotesque practice. But that isn't what was going on in the Hebrew Scriptures. There was an attempt to regulate the practice of indentured servanthood. Now, there are some exceptions to that, but characteristically, that's what's going on. And when you look in the Hebrew Scriptures, you're going to see all of these regulations. You break a—I'm a, a, just going to call it Ebed, so I don't have to word, use the word slave. You break the tooth of one of your Ebed, you hit him in the mouth and break his tooth, you set him free. His obligation to you is complete, for example. And so there are all kinds of regulations that the Hebrews had that the rest of the Gentile nations didn't have. So there was this uh, institution that was unfortunate that did entail uh, a type of ownership of a human being by another, but it was, was radically regulated and made it possible for some people to have a job when they wouldn't have. And I think this makes a huge difference in the way we approach those, that, those issues. So slavery, like being an indentured servant, wasn't a sin. <laughs> I don't know why that Douglas Wilson didn't kind of make this distinction, but this is a big part of understanding the Hebrew Scriptures on this regard. The person who's done the most work in a popular piece is Paul Copan, C-O-P-A-N, and the book he wrote is titled, Is God uh, a monster. What is it, Amy? A moral monster. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> Both of you said it at the same time. It's got a moral monster. Actually, Paul's doing another book. It's just coming out soon uh, to 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 follow up on the one that he... He's actually done two, kind of like that, and he's got a third coming out. But I think that's the best way to think of this whole issue in general. Interesting. Thank you. All righty. All right. Okay, Austin, thanks for your call. And um, I think this is one of the trickiest issues to have to deal with because it's not all squeaky clean because the ancient world was nasty. And so what we have in the Mosaic Law is an attempt to regulate practices that gave an opportunity for poor people to be taken advantage of and to be abused. And in this regulation, there was a provision for indentured servanthood that made it possible for people to work, work off debts, or for, for young women to work, 
So uh, a young woman could be, and this was the text, sold into slavery, but it wasn't by a father, but it wasn't the kind of thing that we think of when we see that phrase. And this is, the translation is really unfortunate. And uh, Peter J. Williams was the first one from Cambridge that pointed out, that I heard, that pointed out this um, anomaly in the translations. And he, uh, I've seen a whole characterization of that in a talk that he gives, you know, let up at a certain point. I think in the King James Version, the word slave doesn't appear maybe once, a single time. All the rest of the time that the word ebed is used, it's translated servant. So um, um, <laughs> Moses was the ebed of, of God, the servant of God. But Moses had ebeds of his own. Moses had slaves. Weird, huh? Anyway, that's the way it goes. Let's see. Uh, let's just keep rolling here. We don't need a commercial. Uh, let's go to Naperville, Illinois, and let me get the button here. Hey, Tim, I g- went to high school in uh, in Elmhurst at York High, so that's not too far from yeah. where we're at Naperville. Right. That's not too far at all. Yeah, I think you guys were in our conference, as I recall. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I was on track there. So anyway, what's on your mind? Well, um, I wondered what your thoughts were on this, and obviously within a Christian con- Christian context, do you think it's appropriate for someone who's married to go on vacations with their friends separate from their spouse, say for a, a wife to go off with like a group of girlfriends and go to Cancun for the week or take a cruise with their girlfriends or... You know, the guys, sure. you know, to do the equivalent of something like that. Well, I, I would say in in principle, it's not a problem. Okay, mm-hmm. my, uh, my, my brother-in-law, who has a great relationship with my sister, my older sister, he's Polish, and he'll get together with his bo- buddy and go to Poland for a week or so um, mm-hmm. to visit relatives and not take his wife, my sister, with them. Um I have gone uh, on trips myself. I go to Wisconsin a couple weeks in May, usually, and I meet my brother there. And so we have a vacation there together, and we go fishing, and uh, my wife is not with us. I'd love to have her with us, but, I mean, this is kind of a guy thing. That's, you know, she's not excluded, but she's just, she's doing other things. And so um, I went on a writing retreat with my daughter, you know, to Wisconsin in in August uh, last year. Oh, wait a minute. That's this year, just three months ago. And, uh, and so my wife wasn't with me. My wife has never gone to Cancun with her girlfriends. But I, in principle, I think that would be fine. A lot would depend on the reason that she's going by herself with her friends and what they plan to do. Mm-hmm. That's another issue. But it would be the if there's any moral question, it has to do with that. So if... You know, she's trying to get away from her husband because she doesn't like her husband, and so she's going out with the girls to, you know, spend as little time with her husband as possible. Well, that means there are problems in the relationship that probably should be addressed. Um, If they're going to party hardy in a way that's not appropriate, well, in Cancun, well, that's, that's also a problem, but it's a problem for a different reason than just having a separate vacation. Um, I un- don't completely understand it myself. If I'm going on a vacation, I want my wife to be with me. 
Right. Um, the thing with my brother's a little different. You know, it's we're going there to, you know, hunker down and go fishing, right? And by yeah. the way, guys go fishing group together and they go on a deep sea thing or they go someplace in the wilds or some other country and they fish together and it's just not what the girls are interested in as it turns right, out. Right, right. So yeah. uh, and that just seems to be completely innocuous and, and fine. So um, it a lot depends on what the motivation is and where they're going and why they're going there kind of thing. So, uh, but just that you may on occasion take separate vacations doesn't I do not think is itself a problem or inappropriate. Am I missing okay. something? Well, um, what I what I was thinking along the lines. Of, I mean, certainly these examples that you've been giving, you know, a fishing trip with the guys, or you going to your cabin in Wisconsin, and you know, your brother-in-law going to Poland or something to mm -hmm. see family. I mean, I, I definitely would agree that those things are innocuous and you know, not morally problematic or anything like that, but. Um, I was thinking along the lines of, you know, how, you know, when you get into something like going on a cruise or a Cancun, you know, resort vacation, and you're just with all the, all your friends without your spouse there, you're potentially putting yourself into, uh, compromising positions. Maybe there's others, there's single people there and there's, you know, maybe some drinking involved and in going out at night and stuff like that. And you're kind of putting yourself into potential uh, situations that could be a problem. Even if your intentions are pure, you're kind of maybe, you know, could find yourself in situations where, you know, members of the opposite sex are hitting on you, you know, or something like that. Yeah, well, that, that can happen anywhere, not just in a situation like that. I, 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 I understand your point, and I would say that a lot depends on the individual involved. So if you have, let's just say a, a husband has a wife who's been on the wild side and wants to hang out with all her girlfriends and go to Cancun for four days or whatever, or go on a cruise yeah. with a lot of other people. Well, then I think there may be a liability, but that's because of the, as I characterized in my illustration, the character of the wife in this circumstance. Yeah. Um, now, my... My wife, I mean, I'm not concerned about her drinking because she's, you know, she doesn't drink to excess. And mm -hmm. I'm not concerned about any of the other temptations that you have described because I know my wife. Um, mm -hmm. So this is why I do think it's situation specific. Sometimes a desire to get away like that, let, I want to go to Cancun with my girlfriends. Well, what's going on in the background? And sometimes not good things are going on in the background because things that are not good going on in the background at home and the relationship she has with her husband, that itself, especially if she's a little on the wild side, that's not a healthy combination to be away in another country with a bunch of friends who may not hold her accountable and may encourage the wrong kinds of behavior. That would be a concern, but it would be concerned about the circumstances themselves, not simply someone going away on a vacation with somebody yeah. else. Okay. Yeah. So you, right. you may or may not have, a, I don't know what circumstance you're facing or your friends are facing or whatever, but those, those are the factors as I see them. All right. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate your insight on that. Uh, all right. Okay. Thank you, Tim, for the call. All right. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Let's go for a, a quick break, okay? And then we'll come to our final caller right after the break.
Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, and our newest apologist, John Noyes, are available, both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule them today. Our speakers can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read their bios and learn more about the topics they cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, or John today. Friends, final segment here on Stand a Reason. Greg Coakley. Oh my goodness, I was saving the last segment uh, for the last caller, and the last caller went bye bye. I don't know how long he was hanging on, but uh, he got tired and uh, gave up the ghost. Uh, oh, the question. Okay, let's take a look at the question, and I can answer it. Maybe listen. Is if, if a Christian doesn't get healed, there's the question. Is it because he didn't have enough faith? Um, probably not. <laughs> I can't say that it's never the case that a lack of trust in God couldn't have any influence on whether a person gets healed or not. But I, I know this line, and this line comes from a faulty understanding of the atonement. Characteristically, there are some people who believe that there is healing through the atonement, and others think there is healing in the atonement. Wow, all that is is a difference of a preposition, right, but it makes a big difference. If we get healed in any way, it is because, on, on this, it, it is because what Christ did makes it possible to be healed. That's healing through the atonement, okay? That's what that phrase kinds of mean, means. That phrase means through the atonement. Um, however, if I say, uh, if the healing is in the atonement, that that means the atonement guarantees the healing. If Christ atoned, then there's healing in that. It's available for every sickness, and therefore no one should ever get sick. Okay, that's the idea. And uh, it's. I think there's merit to the first view. By his stripes, 
we are healed, there is a sense in which what Jesus secured on the cross for us is healing, certainly spiritual healing, potentially physically healing. That would physical healing, that's the way that particular verse is characterized by his stripes, we are healed. I can't remember where that's at in particular, but um uh but that doesn't mean that because Jesus did something that can result in healing for some people that everyone is going to get healed that way. We know that's not true. You know, um, I, I, in one of the Pauline epistles, Paul is explaining his circumstances, and he says that I left, I think it's Demas, he, you know how he, towards the end he talks about his interactions with other Christians, and who went where, and take care of this guy, and this guy, have him bring some stuff to me, and all of this. He says in one of his letters, I left, I think it's Demas, I left Demas sick in Miletus. So in the town of Miletus, there was Demas and Paul with him, and Demas was sick. Well, he wasn't going to hold Paul back. Paul left him there and kept going. Wait a minute, why didn't Paul heal Demas? Why did he leave him there sick? I I guarantee you, Paul prayed for him. All right? I guarantee you that happened. Because that's Paul. He always prays. But it didn't happen. Is that because Paul didn't have enough faith? That Demas didn't have enough faith? There's no indication there of that being the case. We do have circumstances in the Gospels where people reach out to Jesus with the hope that Jesus will act in a way that will bring healing to them. And so the woman with the hemorrhage reaches out and touches the, the tip of his cloak, and he feels the energy going out from him. Who touched me? What do you mean, who touched me? There's all kinds of people all around. His disciples said, no, Jesus found the woman. And then he says, your faith has made you well. Now, I don't think that means that it is her, the energy of her faith that brought her healing. It was her act of trust to reach out to Jesus, who is the healer, with the confidence that Jesus could heal her. And if she just touched the hem of his cloak, she might be healed, which is what happened. So Jesus was the one who accomplished the healing in that case. But it, was, but it was her act of trust, her active faith, that is what initiated the work of Jesus on her behalf. That makes sense? Now, there are lots of people who reach out to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, figuratively speaking. That is, they seek Jesus for healing or for something of significance. And um, I really like the person that Jesus talked to, I think his son was demon-possessed. And, or no, maybe as a blind man. And he said, what do you want from me? And he says, if you're willing, then heal my sight. And Jesus said, I am willing, be healed. Here's why, what I like about that, especially, because in that case, you have a person who's acknowledging that it is not his own capability that makes the difference, but G, or his own belief, or the strength of his faith, or anything like that that makes a difference. 
he is acknowledging that Jesus is the one who makes the difference. But he also acknowledges that Jesus may not choose to make the difference. If you are willing, you can heal me. If you are willing, would you do it? Jesus says, I am willing. Now, I have prayed that prayer many times because there are things that are important that I want, and I want Jesus to do. Healings, after a fashion, that I would like to see him accomplish. But I do not know whether Jesus is willing. Maybe not now, and he will be later. Maybe never later. Maybe the circumstance that I'm praying about will last the rest of my natural life. And if it does, that's Jesus' choice for me. Maybe I don't want it, but I don't call the shots. Jesus calls the shots, okay? And so he gets, he, he is, um, he, he, he has the appropriate latitude to say no if he chooses, or not yet if he chooses. It's not a machine. C.S. Lewis has pointed this out. When we ask God to do something, there's no mechanism. If we pull just the right levers, we're going to get what we're after. We are making a request of a person, and a person can say no. A person can say wait. A person can say maybe later. (laughs) And so, therefore, we appeal to God as a person. Now, Jesus said, oh no, make it James. James says, you have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. There are things that we might have had if we had prayed for them. So, if we don't have the faith or trust or confidence in Christ to ask him for something, then our faith is lacking and keeping us from getting what we, we want and maybe appropriately want, and maybe he would give us if we asked. However, there are times when we ask, and I'm thinking about the important things in my life that I have prayed for years for, things for different people, and I I have said to God, it will never be said of me regarding this issue that I have not because I ask not. I am going to keep asking. Knock, knock, knock. Seek, seek, seek. Ask, ask, ask. And that's what I'm going to be doing. No, Jesus may continue to say no. And, okay, that's his business. But it's not for lack of asking. And my faith is always that he is able, but my faith is almost never I mean, I'm just trying to think of this. Sometimes I think this is different for other people, but for me, I don't know that I ever ask knowing this is going to happen. I think sometimes people have this gift of faith, maybe, and they ask, and they have this sense, I'm asking aggressively, I'm going to grab hold of the horns of the altar, I'm going to shake the Holy of Holies, and I'm going to ask, almost demand, give me and with such confidence, they know it's going to happen, and then God answers their prayer. I, 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 that's not my experience. 
I ask, saying, if you're willing. <laughs> and I don't know if he's willing until it's done. So there are a lot of people who have been injured by this perspective. Oh, you're not healed because you didn't have enough faith. Oh, it was Trophimus, not Demas. Okay, thank you, Amy. Trophimus was left sick. Now I can't remember the town, but wherever it was. But my point is made, I think. And uh, keep praying. Keep praying. Keep asking. Keep trusting. Keep asking for more faith. Try trusting God for doing what you want Him to do, and then accept what He's given you in the moment. I don't think you can do any more than that. All right? Hope that helps. Sorry that I could talk to you personally about your question, but there's the answer to the question, best as I can do. All right, friends, Greg Kokel here for Stand a Reason. Give him heaven. Bye-bye now.